welcome. Good to have you guys with us tonight. I'm actually surprised at how many people showed up the Thursday before Thanksgiving break. Um, so kudos to you guys for sticking it out and staying involved this long into the semester. Um, so Facebook is a place that used to be cool uh, for some of us, and now it's a place which is overrun by uh, a lot of stupid opinions the majority of the time. But if you take uh, what has compounded in terms of current events in the last uh, week even, the last two weeks, uh, Facebook has really become overwhelmed with all sorts of opinions. It's not just Facebook, it's social media. I mean, from the presidential elections to the Paris bombings to Syrian immigrants, uh, everybody has an opinion and they feel like they have a right opinion. And the modern era we live in has given voice to everyone who has uh, an opinion. And, and one, I saw a funny thing this week that said, I'm not sure where I stand on terms of the immigration uh, issue, but I do know who I shouldn't go to if I'm ever kicked out of my house. Um, and we see all of these things floating around right now. Uh, a lot of them are political, some of them are ethical, a lot of them are moral, but actually if you really stop and you look at Twitter um, or Facebook and, and you start really looking at what people are talking about and what their opinions are on, there's actually religious undertones of morality in all of these things we're talking about. How should we as humans act? And additionally, you see, how should you as Christians act? And what they're really discussing is what it means to be Christian in terms of our actions. What it means to say you believe in Jesus and then how that shapes the way in which you respond. And people tend to view Christianity in two camps. Uh, you might have seen this being exposed over the past week and talking about specifically immigration. They say, first, Christianity is, is, is uh, one option, is this, this academic spiritualism, where it's these people sitting around in their tall castles of theology discussing deep things that are really only valuable to humanity in terms of a theoretical existence, right? Who really cares about theology and spiritual things when there are real needs of our community? Christianity brings no hope to a world that has real need because it's only theoretical. That's one side. The other side is Christianity is just a moral system which shapes the way we act, right? We have these refugees coming. What would Jesus do? Well, you should act. Who would Jesus elect as president? What shapes your morals? If you're a Christian, Christianity is really just a way of guiding people's actions, affections, giving, and votes. So on one side, you see Christianity is what you do, on one side, you see Christianity um, is how you think, and the gulf between that seems really, really large. Few people are able to think and act rightly. And see, the problem of the way the cult that culture sees Christianity is actually a symptom of how Christians view Christianity sometimes. Oftentimes, we ourselves have a really... Uh, broad and undefined view of what it means to be Christian. At the depth of what, who we are, oftentimes we wrestle with struggling with what does our own salvation mean? In fact, think about this, okay? I want you to, in your brain, try to answer these questions. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? That's at the root. Christianity is all about this word, the gospel. What is the gospel to you? Is the gospel... Simply anything related to Christianity. Anything that has the word Bible in it or Jesus in it. Is the gospel that God loves you? Is the gospel simply using the word Jesus a lot and talking about Jesus? Is the gospel a story 
to be understood. And even past that, why do we need the gospel? What does the gospel accomplish? Why are we saved by the gospel? Are we saved? Think about it. Why are we saved by the gospel? For what purpose? Are you saved so that we can be loved by God? Are we saved so that we then could love God? Are we saved so that we can do good works? Are we saved only so that we might avoid damnation? Are we saved because it promises a better life? While all of these things have some aspect of truth, I think the majority of people in, in, in the church tend to focus on one aspect of the gospel, one aspect of salvation, rather than understanding the whole implications of the gospel on our lives. And here's why. It's easier. It becomes a pick-and-choose journey that you get to say, this is the part I like, this is easy to believe, this is easy to act upon, this makes me feel better, this is what I believe the gospel is, and this is how my life will be changed by that gospel. And rather than becoming wholly influenced by the gospel, we pick the portions of it we like, that seem palatable to us and acceptable to culture, and we put that forward. And that's what creates this confusion in culture about what it means to be Christian. And where we learn what it means to be Christian is not us getting around and saying, hey, what does it mean to be Christian? We look at God's word. This is what, how it tells us what we should believe and how we should act. And as we've been working through the book of Romans this semester, Paul is now beginning to talk about our salvation. He's beginning to talk about what it means to be saved by the gospel and the impact it plays on our life. And we're beginning Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. But we need to understand it deeply and rightly if we want to understand our salvation deeply and rightly. And what Paul is talking about today is this. Salvation matters. Your salvation matters for you today. It matters for you today, not only in what you believe the gospel to be, but in how you respond to the gospel. And what we're going to see today um, is in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, which is what we're going to look at today, we see, as I said, the gospel for today. And where Paul's going to go next time we gather, which is in two weeks, in verse 18, he's going to see the gospel for eternity. And so he's talking about the salvation, and he says, not only is it relevant to help us understand our past, which is what we looked at last week for those of you who are here, it's relevant for how you, you live your life today, and it's also relevant in terms of how we live for eternity, which we'll look at in a little bit. And this is kind of the, the, the lull. This is the GCF before Thanksgiving break section of Romans, where not a lot of people do it well. Because we have a tendency to view our salvation either as a past event, I have been saved, whatever happens, happens. Or a future event, I'm going to live the way I live, but I will be saved one day. And we don't take this salvation, we don't take this gospel, these terms that Paul's going to define for us, and we don't allow it to shape our life right now. But I'm going to tell you this, if we want culture to see Christianity not only as blind moralistic actions, and not only as dead intellectual thoughts, we have to know this portion of Romans. Because the, what bridges those two false identities of Christianity is the gospel rightly understood and applied to one's life. So here's what we're going to see tonight. This is kind of the thesis sentence. We're going to see a life which is not made different by the gospel is a life which has never experienced the gospel of Jesus. A life not made different by the gospel 
is not a life or is a life which has never experienced the gospel of Jesus. This sounds bold, uh, but I hope to stand behind what Paul is saying in God's word. So let's pray real quick um, and we'll, we'll dive in here. Lord, we thank you for Romans chapter 8. We thank you for what it means to us as believers. And Lord, we thank you um, that for those of us in here who are not believers, who are looking at Christianity, who are here because friends invited them or for some reason, that this passage is good not only for believers but for non-believers because it gives the hope of the gospel. It shows the gracious reality of Jesus coming and dying in the place of sinners. And so Lord, I pray tonight as we look at this text which makes a lot of bold statements I pray that our defenses will be removed and we will allow it to encounter us where we are. We'll be real in responding with uh, a right understanding of our weaknesses and our strengths understood in light of what Christ has done for us. But Lord, we pray tonight that we would honor you in the way in which we sit under and respect your word. We think it is powerful and it works on us. Press in your holy name. Amen. So uh, the first thing we're going to see today is the glory of the gospel. And this is really Paul's theology of the gospel. What to Paul is the glorious aspect that we should know about this thing called the gospel? And this is important because if there's anything that shapes your thoughts as a believer, it should be these thoughts that Paul is going to give us right now. We're going to see this. It's part of what Caleb just read in Romans 8, verses 1 through 3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So this is a huge verse in terms of how we understand our salvation. Because what this verse is saying is we once stood dead in our sins. Last week, Paul used uh, this uh, verbiage talking in Romans 7. He said, the very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death because sin was in his life. And so in trying to obey and find salvation outside of God, he actually heaped more and more death, that's even possible, on top of his head. This goes all the way back to Romans 3.23, where Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what Paul is saying is he's defining our humanity. What's the greatest need of our humanity? He's saying if anyone has sinned even once, you're worthy of condemnation. You're worthy of damnation because you violated the perfect rule of your creator king. God made a perfect rule and you violated it and therefore you stood trial before God. And if left on your own, you would be judged as worthy of punishment. We'd look at you and say, here's the perfect law. Did you violate it? You violated it. You're worthy of punishment. And see, even the most moral among us have sinned in our hearts by rejecting God as our Savior. Sin is more than just doing bad things. It's also not believing the right things. And the punishment of our sin is eternal damnation because we couldn't meet the law of perfection. That means we couldn't live perfectly we couldn't act perfectly. We couldn't think perfectly. We don't even love perfectly. The thing that seems to come so natural to our culture, our love is broken. Our bodies desire things which are unnatural. We see this today. Did anyone see what happened with Jared Fogle, the subway guy? 
15 years in prison for child porn and sex with underage children. And our humanity's broken. And while that's the extreme nature, the deadness of his heart was the same of our heart before Christ. And the only reason we're not doing awful things is because God is gracious in restraining that sin in our own heart because dead hearts produce dead things. Sinful hearts produce sinful things. That is who we are in the nastiness of our flesh. And then this verse comes in. There is now therefore no condemnation. You who once stood accused now stand redeemed. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How? This is something we'd want to know. This is, if this is the plot of the movie, we want to know how we've been deemed innocent. How is it we've been declared, to use the biblical term, righteous, not guilty? How are we judged not worthy of condemnation? Well, Paul told us in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So we were under one law. We've looked at this in Romans chapter 7. We were under the law that produced sin in us, right? We talked about last week uh, how commandments lead us to sin, right? Everyone think of your favorite animal right now. Okay, you did that freely. Don't think of a red elephant. Everyone thought of a red elephant, right? Commandments provoke us to sin. And so he talks about this law, um, and he says that led you to sin, and you were under that. You were under damnation. You were under condemnation. You couldn't meet it. You are punching at the wind. You were, you were striving after things you could never have, but now you've been taken away from that law. You've been put under a spirit of life, a new law, a new living code, new life in the spirit of God, which Christ accomplished. Now, I want you to see this because this is kind of the beauty of Paul's language here. Look at the beauty of what Christ accomplished in Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, the law was supposed to make us righteous. If we met the law, we were righteous. If we met the law, we were perfect, but we weren't perfect. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, here's the glory of the gospel, okay? If you want an answer to the question, what is the gospel? I want you to listen here. What Paul has emphasized in the first six chapters is we have sinned because in our flesh we're weak. When Adam and Eve sinned, it set the precedent of deadness for the rest of human history. We're born of Adam. Our sinful hearts desired to reject God. And where do we see that? I have had two kids. None of them came out of the womb singing the Hallelujah Chorus. None of them came out of the womb praising God. They came out having to learn to praise God, to learn to obey Him. Our hearts desired to reject God and our bodies delighted to follow that rejection. Delighted in disobedience, delighted to find worship in themselves, delighted to cherish what other people thought, delighted to follow culture. And yet Christ took the form of flesh. That's what he says. He, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh in all of its innate weakness, in all of its limitations. Holy, cosmic, infinite, divine God in holy perfection, perfect relationship in the Trinity for all eternity came to a place where we get hangnails. And he came not only with the physical limitations, but he came with all of the potential to sin, to rebel, to be provoked, to disobey, 
And yet here is the divine glory of the gospel. When we were born into sinful flesh, we were condemned. For that flesh led us to sin unto death. Yet when Jesus took on sinful flesh, rather than he himself being condemned in the same way we were condemned, he condemned sin in the flesh. You see that great reversal? We are condemned in the flesh. Jesus took on the flesh and condemned sin in it. What condemned us was condemned by Christ. Where sin once ruled, Christ now liberated. This is the greatest movie plot the world has ever seen. Nothing rivals the plot twist that just happened of the Savior coming and dying on a cross where sin once lived, living a perfect life, seeing all we saw, provoked by all that provoked us, dying a physical death in the place of sinners, Christ destroyed the very death that tried to enslave us by dying to it. And more than dying to it, he was risen again. The glory of the gospel is that Christ took the flesh that broke us and he broke the curse that enslaved flesh. My wife hates the word flesh. She would hate this sermon right now. But here's the thing. Uh, one of our pastors always says, when he does counseling, he calls it the million dollar question. He says, if God called you into heaven today and he said, why should you come into my heaven? What would you say? After what we just read, Paul's little nugget of the gospel, God called you into heaven, you're banking on this, you should have something to say, what would you say? See, we wouldn't get into heaven because we were cute, wouldn't get into heaven because we had great potential, we wouldn't get into heaven because we showed up to church, we wouldn't get into heaven simply because God is love. We wouldn't even get into heaven because we loved God, for Jesus says, there are many that would have loved me. We wouldn't get into heaven because we thought we knew what was going on and we lived as good a life as we could have lived. We will get into heaven because Jesus went to the cross for your sins. He took your punishment so that you would get his perfection. The reason why we're not condemned in Romans 8 verse 1 is because Christ was condemned in our place. We went to heaven not because blood was removed, but because blood was shed. We went to heaven not because judgment was taken off the table, but because one was judged in our place. You see, the reason we have no condemnation is because Christ went before us and he took our condemnation. He took the wrath of God and those who are in Christ Jesus didn't cheat justice. We received true justice of our debt being paid. And this is the right belief of the gospel. This is the right things to think, right? We talk, so this is one pull. How do we think rightly of the gospel? We think Jesus died for our sins to remove condemnation. Now the other question is why? How do we act? And so this is where we get into the purpose. Why the gospel? Why did God save us? If you consider yourself a believer in here, why did God save you? Was it merely so that you would be declared righteous? So that you would no longer be under condemnation? Did he save you merely to remove you from punishment? Did he save you just to remove the burden of guilt so that we could have better self-esteem? 
Did he save you so that we could figure out how to spend two hours of our week in church or in Bible study? What's the purpose of our salvation? Look at the next verse, verse 4. Verse 3 ends with, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, we were saved because God is zealous for His own glory. And He is a mighty God who has saved people from a mighty disease. We're saved because God desires His glory. We are saved because God is good. But what's the purpose here? What did the Bible just say the purpose of our salvation was? In order that we might walk in the spirit of righteousness. We were saved not only to believe a different thing, but to live a different way. And how, how long it took me in my life to understand that. I saw salvation as something I would believe and I should not do, the token things I shouldn't do, but as long as I believed what was right, that'd be good for me. We do need to believe what's right. But he's calling us to what the Bible calls holiness. Living a life in accordance to God's perfect desire. The righteous, the right requirement of the new law in the Spirit is fulfilled in us through Christ by walking according to the Spirit. One commentator said this on this text, on this specific verse. He says, this verse shows us that holiness is the ultimate purpose of Christ's incarnation, that's him becoming flesh, and of Christ's atonement, that's him dying on the cross. When you think of your salvation, for those of you who consider yourself Christian, do you think of righteousness? And not just, the, I was declared righteous, right? We get that. We get what we believe. That's the easy part. But do you think of, is my salvation being manifest in the newness of life I live in because of my conversion? Am I converted? Am I made new, not only in thought, but in action? Or do you, like me, typically tend to see holiness, obedience, righteousness as like an add-on? Maybe someday, maybe super Christians, not for me. I believe rightly, I know rightly, I love Jesus. That's the purpose of the gospel. Paul says that's an incomplete view. And see, this is the second point tonight. This is the distinction of the gospel. You see, when the gospel, when rightly understood, accomplishes something distinct in the believer. There's a purpose statement that the gospel does. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard this verse, and I apologize if you're one who's used it this way, but I feel like Paul is gently correcting us here. Who, who come to me and, and we're, we're counseling and we're talking about how they're living life, and they use Romans 8 verse 1, there's now for, there, there's the, Therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And they say this. Why do you focus so much on how I live? Why do you point out so much sin in my life? The Bible says there's no more condemnation. Perhaps you've used that that way. Perhaps you've heard somebody say, like, stop judging me. No more condemnation. That's Romans 8.1, right? That's what it means. And unfortunately, that's not what it means. 
But what has become pervasive in our church is this, I, I'm making up uh, a medical condition here. So you could put it, any med student, pre, we had a nursing student, if you put this in a journal, you could just cite me. But you, I mean, you could, you, you could get the royalties from it, but as long as I'm in there, that'd be great. Um, I call it the disease of okayism. I'm okay, you're okay, most of us are okay. Let's just let each other be okay. We know rightly, we love Jesus, we have good intentions. Stop talking about where I fail. Stop telling me to live my life differently. And part of this is because, um, and I don't mean to, to harp on a generation because it doesn't excuse things, but, but our culture is responding to what our parents knew as behavior modification. Being a Christian meant doing good things, going to church, tithing, getting married, having kids, and living the American dream. But that's not what being Christian meant. Being Christian is what we just saw. It's the death of Christ in our place for sins. And so what was over here where being Christian was simply living a life of good morals, we swung all the way over here and we're like, Christianity isn't about behavior modification, which is true. None of us will be saved by how we act. None of us uh, merit God's kindness because we give to world missions. None of us merit God's mercy because we went to church enough that he noticed us and he saw us and he says, hey, I'm gonna save you. You showed up to church enough. And yet, we've reduced Christianity to an intellectual belief that modifies nothing. We say we love Christ, but we have become comfortable with the idea that it doesn't really need to change our life out of our predefined hour or two of what we call worship. I'll be different at church. I'll be different at Bible study. But realistically, it doesn't change things. Sure, I won't do the token sins. I know that. But I'm not too distinct from culture. I might look a little better than culture, but let's, let's be honest. I don't need to change much because I believe Jesus died for me. We've robbed the gospel of any sort of change which Christ died to accomplish. And I want you to hear what Paul's saying here. Paul's not saying this is a wrong mindset. He's saying this is an unconverted mindset. He's saying if you see this false dichotomy where you can be a Christian with your head in your mouth but not with your hands in your time, you're living life of what he calls the flesh. Your mind is set on the flesh dedicated to the flesh, obsessed with the flesh, not the life of the Spirit, which is what saved us from sin and death and condemnation through Jesus Christ. Look at what he says next. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And how empty our thoughts are sometimes. To not think about righteousness, to not think about holiness is to fail. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Listen to these words. The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you realize the weight of what Paul's saying here? He's not saying... Those who live in the flesh, you're, 
you're, you're going to make it, but you're not going to get like superstars in heaven. You're not going to get the gold stars. Your mansion's going to be a little smaller. Those are, Paul's bringing condemnation back into the picture, isn't he? For those who live in this way, this doesn't sound like the life and peace. This doesn't sound like no condemnation in Christ Jesus. This sounds like slavery. This sounds like fear. And Paul assumes this. You see how he starts this? For we know. For those who live according to the flesh live in this way. We know that there's a distinction between those who know the gospel and those who don't. Those who don't know the gospel, they think of their lives in terms of their flesh. That doesn't mean they're self-obsessed in really obvious ways. That doesn't mean they're as wicked as they could be. But it means that when they think about their life, when they think about their desires, when they think about their priorities, they think about their desires, their needs, and their wants. And yet, we can disguise that so easily. Because by putting my identity in someone else, like a girlfriend or a dream or a career. That's me just shifting my identity somewhere. That's still a life of self-obsession. Even if we change it to pleasing culture and responding to culture, that's not dwelling from the Christ who went to the cross to condemn the death that condemned you. That's drawing from a well that's broken, from a cistern that's cracked, from dirty water, from the filthy mire. And Paul says, that will not please God. Paul says the mind of a believer, though, is set on the things of the Spirit. It brings life. It brings peace. It brings joy. It brings satisfaction. So you, when you zoom out on your life, okay, you're out of GCF, you're out of church, you're out of Bible study, what's your primary motivation? What is the... There are, uh, when, if you take literature classes, you'll study authors and genres, and you'll realize that the majority of authors wrote with some sort of background. And everything they wrote kind of resonates with this background. Some call it the melodic line. What's your melodic line? What resonates in your heart? What shapes how you act with your friends? What shapes your desires and your expectations for your studies? What forms the desires or expectations you have in a boyfriend or a girlfriend? What informs the perception you have of your own sexuality? Or is this shaping influence? How does this life please the God who saved me? How is this life a life of the Spirit? Because Paul makes it clear, if it's not there, you will not please God. If it's not there, this is Paul's logic. If we rewind what we just read, it's this. You're not pleasing God. You're not walking in the righteous requirements of the law, which means you're not walking in the spirit, but you're walking in the flesh, which means no more are you outside of condemnation, but now you're inside of it. We love the album played forward, (laughs) but we don't like the implications of when we play it backwards in view of our own life. Now watch to remember this. Paul's writing this to Christians. He's writing this because he knows we're going to wrestle with this. He's writing this because he knows it's easy to either think rightly and not care about your life or to do rightly and not care about your thoughts. He knows that that will be our tendency and he's reminding us of this black and white distinction which should happen for those who are saved. 
He's, he's, he's striking a gong which should wake us up and cause us to view our own life. But he's also writing to encourage us. Because as much as Paul is harping change in Romans 8, Paul is writing for our security. He's writing for our joy. I want us to all remember last week, we looked at Romans 7. We see this text where Paul is distraught. He says, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For if I do the thing I want, it's not me who does it, but the sin who dwells in me. Wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we see Paul grieving and wrestling with his desire to sin in light of his knowledge of salvation. And we just saw in Romans 8 this needed distinction. There should be something distinct. Christians should be distinct from culture. Christians should be different. That's not legalism. That's not behavior modification. That's the application of salvation. We should be distinct in that. Now here's the thing. It would have been entirely fair for God to say, I got you out of the hole, I paid your bail, you're no longer in condemnation, obey the law. Be perfect. You broke curfew once, I gave you grace, don't break it again. Don't screw up. But here's the thing, if that's all we had, if all we had was our own effort, our own ability, our own apps that remind us when we're starting to sin, we would end up falling back into sin. You would be assured of it. But God did something better. Not only did he declare us to be righteous by sending his son to die in your place. Look at what verses 9 through 11 says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see that he not only filled us with the spirit, he transferred us from a life in flesh to a life in the spirit. Not only have we been saved to the spirit of the law, which isn't a law, it's a person. Believers aren't called to follow the law in the same way Jews were called to follow the law. We're called to follow the spirit of the law, which is Christ himself. It's not an impersonal obedience, but it's following the perfect person of Jesus Christ. And the result of that is we have been indwelt, like tented in, made the home of the spirit of God. And what he says about that I want you to understand this because these are common words that we use, but often we don't think of them as deeply as we should when, when they're framed in, in, in terms of who Christ is. Paul said, you belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus Christ. Do you understand what that means for you? You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to the one who saved you and the result is that same spirit who raised Jesus from the physical dead will raise you from spiritual dead and give you life in your mortal bodies. This is why this is important, okay? You guys want a fancy Latinish term tonight? Uh, it's called, what, what Paul is talking about here is called vivification. Vivi, vivi for vivi. Um, and then, Kate, no. Uh, vivi for life, for vivified. The process of being brought to life. To be made alive. 
Now, I want you to see how Paul has set this up. We don't just jump into Romans 8 and read this. Look at what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passion. You see the slavery there, right? Who's making you obey? It's not you. Sin's making you obey. Sin enslaves your mortal body. Sin rules you, and it makes you think you have control, but you're controlled by sin, which produces death. We see this in Romans 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Not only were you enslaved to sin, but what did your sin produce? Fruit unto death. You didn't produce kind of goodness. You didn't produce flashes of good potential. You produced death. Last week we saw Romans 7, 22 through 23. Paul says this, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of the mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Do you hear, so, so do you hear this cadence of Paul? Your members, your mortal body, your arms, your legs, your hearts, your person, your mortalness serves sin, enslaved to sin, bound to sin. But then we see the wonderful change, the conversion of Romans 8 verse 11. Do you see that? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. How will you resist sin? Not through effort. Not simply through guarding your schedule. Not simply from removing the external circumstances which provoke it in our life. For that can't touch the heart. But what touches the heart is the Holy Spirit who takes what was once dead, enslaved to bondage, to death, and vivifies it and breathes life into it. And says that promise that I made in Ezekiel 36 where it says, I will put my spirit in you and I will make you to obey my laws. We live in the time of that fulfillment. We live where it's not obey this and live, but let me help you obey that by putting my spirit inside of you. You see, we have not only been indwelt by God himself in the Holy Spirit, we have the power of God himself in us through the Holy Spirit. Now let me just address something briefly here. Paul uses this logic um, in verse 9, which goes like this. He says, um, to have Christ is to have the Holy Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit is to have Christ. So what Paul is, is saying here is there's this instantaneous, when you believe in Christ, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit is the secondary thing that super Christians get, but it says when you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have Christ. To know Christ is to immediately have the Holy Spirit. And here's why this is important, okay? This isn't just a theological debate. Let me tell you why this is important for you. The act of living rightly, of pursuing holiness, loving righteousness, and obeying God is not something reserved only for super-Christians who have reached some point where through saying the right things and praying the right prayers, they become filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the act of living rightly is something possessed by each believer 
immediately upon your conversion because you have received the Holy Spirit which gives you life over sin. That means that young Christian, old Christian, new Christian, mature Christian, you are capable of living differently. It's not that you be a Christian for 10 years and then you get serious about it and now you'll start changing your life. It's that you have the power of God to bring life to a spot which was once dead and to not exercise it is not to enjoy your youth, but it's to practice unbelief. It's to not understand what the gospel came to do. Next weekend at Sovereign Hope, uh, we'll look at this verse in 1 John 3, which says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Where does your understanding of the love of God manifest itself in that distinction? Are you something unknown and different from the world because you understand the true love of God? Because if you feel like you know the love of God and you understand the gospel and yet we look at you and the world says, I know you, you're one of us. You don't understand the love of God. You don't know the purpose of your salvation. You don't know the joy of following Jesus. Where in your life are you different from the world? Where would people who are walking by right now not see, well, you do something different with your time? Where would they see you do something different with your life? Where would they see your different values? You see, Jesus gave a really, some would say great, commission to his disciples when he's ascending to the earth and he says this, go forth, make disciples of all nations and teach them to know all that I've commanded them. Is that what it says? No, Bible quiz, you're wrong. Um, what it says, go forth, make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey all that I have commanded them. When Jesus called his disciples, he didn't say, go and learn. He said, follow me. When Jesus was speaking to Peter before he left, do you love me? Good, that's it. He says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do my work. Live my life. Show my love. You see, the Christian life consists of believing rightly and obeying rightly. Where's that distinction in your life? There's a lot of false confidences we could have. We saw what culture painted, knowing and doing as separate things. And here's the thing, you can talk a lot about Jesus. You can go to a church and be involved in a ministry that talks a lot about Jesus. You can sing impassioned songs. You can go on mission trips. But if you and your church are not distinct from the world, if there's not this pressing reality in who you are and in what your church is proclaiming, so as an unbeliever says, this is something different, I doubt you or that church or that ministry or that circle of friends knows the gospel. Because if culture can be comfortable in light of the gospel, Who's Lord, God or culture? Don't think that talking about Jesus or going to a place where there are people who talk about Jesus and worshiping in a crowd means that you're a good Christian. 
For being a good Christian Christian implies a difference in who we are and what we do. To talk much of Jesus and even to have affection for Jesus is not sufficient if you're not distinct in your living because your living points out something that's wrong with your belief. On the flip side, there are many people who will do great moral things. They will see themselves as good people who are worthy of good. One, I met with a guy, I asked him that million dollar question. He said, I've been a good guy. I've, I've righted more wrongs than I've committed. Yet Jesus himself says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do many things in your name? And I will say away from you, evildoer. I never knew you. See, true salvation understands the gospel rightly and lives out the gospel rightly. Not because we're great, but because we realize that God has indwelt us to know and do. And so this is where Paul is going to push past all of this self-introspection he's forcing us to do. And he's going to encourage us even more. So far, we can become weighted with how we fail to live distinctly. But Paul is going to encourage us now. And this is the last point. This is the empowerment of the gospel. Verses 8 through 17. So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness in our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul has this great logic. He says, you are not debtors to the flesh. The flesh didn't save you. The flesh didn't love you. The flesh didn't merit anything in your life. Don't feel like you have to live according to the flesh. You're in no debt to them. You owe them no act, no allegiance, no affection. But to live according to the Spirit is to live under the freedom that Christ has purchased. And then he says this, not only are we purchased to do good works, we just saw it, right? Uh, vivification. Um, and, and, and not only can we do good things now, but part of the Christian life also includes the flip side of that. Mortification. The mortifying of sin. The putting to death of sin. See, as you grow, it's not enough to do good things, but still be content doing bad things. You also must put to death the actions which are sinful. And we could put them to death because Jesus already has. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. And so when we're we're falling prey to flesh, we're not falling prey to something which is alive. We're falling prey to something which Jesus has already destroyed. But I really want us to look again at the section Paul closes with, verses 14 through 17. He says this, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provided that we suffer with him, we may also be glorified with him. For the believer today, your salvation encourages you into righteous living for you've been adopted as sons. 
And see, that adoption word actually in the, in the Greco-Roman culture of what's going on, it, it's a, adoption was a stronger, more familial, familial thing than it was now. You see, it was, it was more concrete because when someone adopted a son, it was so that for the purpose of not simply adding to the family to have another kid or even to bring this child out of a bad environment, it was to extend the namesake of the family. It was to bring that person in to be a representation of, extension of, and benefit for and of the family. There was no separation or distinction as there might be today, adoption was objectively rooted not in the process of adopting, but in the result of sonship. And here's where Paul encourages us. If there is any area in your life that you know needs to change, that's a testimony to your salvation. Dead people don't feel the need to change for they're dead. Only people who have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, wants to change. For we do not change out of our own desire for good. We change because we're led by the Spirit who leads us to our Father, crying. I love that picture. The Holy Spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. When we're in Romans 7, when we're wrestling with sin, we're saying, God, I don't believe you. God, I doubt you. God, this sin is real. This sin is big. It has big promises and a loud mouth. Our Holy Spirit inside of us cries, Abba, Father, that's not who you are. Go to the one who has adopted you. Go to the one who has saved you. And even that tension that Paul felt in Romans 7 is the encouragement that warms his body and brings warm tinglies to his heart as he knows that's different because that's not who I am. I'm Jesus' son. I'm Jesus' debtor, not the world's. Any increased desire you have for holiness, any desire to worship God at a greater capacity testifies to the fact that you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, you have grounds to worship eternally. For you are no longer in the flesh. You are one who has been saved by God. You're the victim of a miracle, the object of a consuming love, powerful love which is captured taken you've been chosen by God himself to bring glory to him through salvation and joy in the way we can live in righteousness which means here's more encouragement for you when we encounter in our own life a lack of right living we encounter it in the realm and safety of the family See, one of the more trying things um, I've had to learn as a, as a father is how to discipline my kids. It's hard. When your parents say, uh, this hurts me more than it hurts you, um, it mainly just hurts our brains because we don't know what we're doing in discipline. We just try to be consistent, loving, and merciful. And there are some times where Owen, my three-year-old, will, will sin, um, and I'll say, Owen, I'll say, I'll say it verbally to him. I'll say, I'm going to give you grace today. I'm going to give you grace and I'm not going to punish you. But there are other times where Owen will have done something sinful. He will have disobeyed and either hurt himself, hurt his sister, or broken something. And he'll look at me and he'll say, but daddy, is it okay? And I have to look at him. I have to say, no, Owen, it's not okay. We shouldn't live lives that hurt people. We shouldn't live lives in a way that brings harm to us or to others. And I say, Owen, I will always love you as my son. 
but that's not how daddy's sons act. It's not okay you did that, and we need to change it, and I'm going to help you. You see, the beautiful thing, and the, the one thing that shaped my parenting even more, is when I discipline Owen for not picking up his toys, I don't leave him there. I don't leave him in his room if that's where he's rebelling and his toys are in the kitchen. I bring him to his toys. I say, let me help you. Let me put you in a position where you can obey. Let me put you in a position where you can see difference in how you're responding. Let me put you in a position where you desire to serve your father, where you desire to love your sister because you are my son. Today's church needs to break this culture of okayism. You guys need to bring the bridge between thinking as Christian and acting as Christian to show true salvation influences how we think and how we act. There's a line in the prophets where uh, they cry, the false prophets are crying out, peace, peace, and it says, but there is no peace. The challenge of today's Christians will be answering the call of cultural Christianity that says everything is okay and you don't need to change with the biblical call of your salvation has made you distinct because Christ has died for you. So here's what I want us to do in closing. I want us to, first I want us to see obedience rightly. To, to emphasize obeying and doing and righteousness and holiness, it's not legalism. The Bible calls that grace. That's a grace that we could do. That's not, you're not earning God's favor. You're living out God's mercy. Do you see the words he says? Sin produces death. Sin produces frustration. But the spirit of life, living in the spirit produces life and peace. Who doesn't want that? God's not trying to sell us a turd in a box. He's selling us an experience of joy and satisfaction. But secondly, here's what I want you to do. We're coming up on a week off for Thanksgiving. I want you to go home. I want you to enjoy yourself, but I want you to, to, uh, to think. As you're out of your rhythm here, as you're maybe hanging out with old friends, with your family, here's an exercise I want you to do. At the end of each day, I want you to write down a couple sentences answering each of these questions. Question one, what did my life say about my salvation today? If someone observed my life, what would it say about my hope? What would it say about my desires? And then secondly, that's to people who focus only um, on thinking and not acting. Secondly, we need to answer the question, what did my heart say about my salvation today? This is for people who focus only on acting and not thinking. Did I delight in God's word? Did I desire to please him? And use this as a diagnostic tool. And there are two responses I want you to have. I don't want you to be crushed by this. I don't want you to be disappointed by this. I want you to be burdened by this. I want you to see that if there's any way in your life you point to be like, that was distinct. I want you to praise God because that's a sign of your conversion. You didn't do that on your own. You did that as a miracle, an inbreaking of the kingdom of God showing a glimpse of who you will one day be fully. But secondly, if you see places where you struggle, I want you to rejoice in that you're not left to fight that alone. But you've already been given victory over that sin because you've been granted a victory in Christ's victory and you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray you make us distinct. 
Lord, I thank you for that purpose statement that we have been redeemed in order that the righteous requirements might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. So God, I pray for those in here today who are yours, who are believers, that you would force distinction upon us by giving us a clear picture of the gospel, that you would remove from us any lingering effects of okayism, thinking that we're fine to live in the way we live as long as we believe the things we believe. But I pray, Lord, that the impact of our faith doesn't only affect what we believe, but it wrecks our former life, that it changes, enlivens, and completely alters the deadness of who we once were to live as someone who is new. And it emboldens us not only to fight sin in our own hearts, but to fight sin on the outside of our hearts, to reach other people with the gospel of Jesus, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, to not fear culture because we are by nature distinct and we owe no debt or no courtesy to culture or to people or to fads. We owe our allegiance, our affection, and our worship to the God who has come in our place by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin and in so doing condemning flesh and sin to redeem us. We pray this in your holy name. Encourage us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Amen.